and welcome to Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today we're speaking with Sheila Weinberg. She's the founder and CEO of Truth in Accounting, a great website. Uh, we'll talk all about the site and all the uh, interesting things and articles they're writing over there. And uh, it's truthinaccounting.org, so please check it out and... Uh, yeah, this is a fun one. A lot of uh, interesting uh, insights into how much money the government really is in debt for. So uh, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the podcast. All right, today another exciting podcast. We're going to be talking about truth in accounting and what does that mean? Well, we're about to find out. So our guest today is Sheila Weinberg. So hello, Sheila. How are you doing today? Good, Paul. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. Um, so, Sheila, you're the founder and CEO of Truth in Accounting. So, why don't we just start off? Tell us, tell us what is this organization? Uh, you know, uh, when did it start? Why was it founded? All that good stuff. Well, we're a 501c3, a nonpartisan, uh, just purely educational organization. Uh, we focus on uh, budgeting and accounting issues. Um, and to that extent, we, we don't get into tax or spending policies. We just care about whether uh, governments you know, report their budgets and their financial reporting uh, accurately. Um, I actually started the organization over my concern uh, over the 2000 election. Um, I had studied the federal budget. And from that study, I realized uh, that even though the government was saying that we were running surpluses, we were actually not. In fact, if you, I found a paper done by Hal Jackson out of Harvard who looked at Social Security and said if you handled that program alone as a pension, as a, like a pension plan, that, you know, accounted for it like a pension plan, that that program alone was running a $400 billion deficit. So then comes the 2000 election and Governor Bush is saying, hey, you know, I'm going to take the surplus and and give it back to the taxpayers. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember, Paul, but Gore was saying he was going to put it in a lockbox. And I'm, in essence, shaking my TV every night going, there isn't a surplus. We shouldn't be talking about a surplus. And then after the election happened, I'm like, did we just elect the leader of the largest financial organization in the world, the federal government, based upon the wrong numbers? And the answer was yes. And I'm not a complainer. I'm a doer. So I started Truth in Accounting to educate the people about the federal government's budgeting and accounting practices. I got some legislation introduced into Congress. Uh, and then from that, people uh, in the state said, well, if you think the federal government's books uh, are bad, some of these state and local government's books are bad. So from that, uh, you know, gained a board, got staff, and we expanded to doing uh, state and local governments also. Yeah, no, and that's you know this is a topic that definitely comes up quite a bit around the government. Um, those of us that work with the government or for the government in the accounting world, you know, the the funny numbers, <laughs> the uh, you know they don't really tell you everything the taxpayer exactly or the public what what the real full truth of the debts out there are. Um, so this is really amazing, and I didn't I didn't mention it yet, but you have your uh, your website here. Um, and that is it's just truthinaccounting.org, is that right? Truthinaccounting.org is our main website. And then we have a sister website, 
called data-c.org, and that is where we maintain our data um, and also gives people the ability to uh, to compare uh, state and local governments and get historical information, just not on our numbers, but on uh, uh, other numbers. We have 700 data points, so if you want to look at housing prices or other economic and demographic um, demographic information, you can get that and do charts to compare your city and states uh, to each other. Um, I'm, I'm always drawn toward a higher level since we're just introducing this topic of that. I really believe that you know our mission uh, and the way some of the governments are doing their finances is actually hurting our representative form of government. And uh, Thomas Jefferson said something like, an informed electorate is the basis of a sound democracy. And in our, in some cases, the electorate is actually misin misinformed. So people are making tax and spending the po policies based upon the wrong information and even who to vote for. And so that's why uh, uh, AGA, I always quote AGA on this, uh, they, they stated uh, in a study that they did with uh, Harris that um, the AGA believes that it is difficult to overstate how efficient uh, efficient reporting of government financial information contributes to a healthy democracy without accurate fiscal information delivered regularly in an easily understandable format. Citizens lack the knowledge they need to interact with their, with and cast informed votes for their leaders. In this regard, the lack of government accountability and transparency undermines our democracy and rise, gives rise to cynicism and mistrust. So, it highlights the importance of our work, but also the importance of your listeners' work, of government accountants' work, and just how important it is to get all this information to the citizenry. Right, and that's a key point, just easy to understand, easy to, uh, you know, read. I, that's what I love about your website and all the products on there. They're all, they're all presented very clearly, and, you know, they're easy to understand and try to get to the bottom of things, so I, I really like that. Um, and speaking of that, I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the foundational messages of the website is there's a difference between this official national debt and what we believe the, the actual true, you know, burden is. Can you explain what that difference is? Well, I would do that in a form of questions to a question to you, which is, do you believe that our seniors are owed the Social Security and Medicare benefits that they have been promised? I would think so. And our veterans, I assume you also believe that they have been, uh, they are, you know, deserve and are owed the benefits that they have been promised. And the published debt, which is around 30 near trillion dollars these days, um, that does not include those promises. Uh, it, so uh, we go ahead and we go through the federal financial reports, the Social Security trustees reports, and pull the numbers in relation to the benefits that are owed, you know, the unfunded liabilities that are owed to uh, for Social Security, Medicare, uh, veterans benefits that are owed and include those in the true national debt. Yeah, and then the number's quite vast, the difference, right? I mean, the truth number you all have is at what, like $143 trillion? Yeah, $142 yeah, trillion, and then we divide that by the number of people who uh, the, the number of tax returns that have been that were filed by to the IRS, and that amounts to uh, 
fifty, uh, uh, almost a million dollars. We're up to almost a million dollars, nine hundred and nineteen thousand dollars per taxpayer. And what that means is, in order to pay these promised benefits, uh, taxpayers are going to have to pay that much. Each taxpayers are going to have to pay that much in taxes to cover these uh, benefits that are promised. You know, and that includes unfunded uh, Medicare promises of more than fifty. Trillion unfunded Social Security promises of more than 41 trillion, and then uh, pensions and retiree health care debts of more than almost 10 trillion dollars. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's another thing that you know people don't really understand. Numbers bigger than a hundred, <laughs> so a million. Yeah, we can sort of understand a million, a billion. Hmm, not so much trillion. Really, don't get that. You know, that's like a million millions. Um, and I think I saw some statistics somewhere, you know, if you divided $1 trillion amongst the entire U.S., you know, each person would basically get about 3000 bucks. So Yeah, and, uh, you yeah, know, that's why we divide it per taxpayer, which, again, is, is just an astronomically high number of, you know, more than $900,000, almost a million dollars per taxpayer. And that doesn't include state and local government debt. So the, it sounds like the biggest part of this is definitely all these the the pensions and unfunded those 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 unfunded pensions and those kind of uh, those kind of liabilities correct for the state and local government uh, it is uh, the unfunded pension and retiree health care liabilities people you know oftentimes are like well you guys are focusing on that the reason that we focus on that is because that's where the numbers take you um, you know if the governments would have you know not balanced their budgets by borrowing money and they had a lot of borrowed debt um, then that's where the numbers uh, take people but uh, unfortunately or unfortunately they've you know gone ahead and uh, uh, you know, balance their budgets while uh, incurring all of these pensions and retiree health care liabilities without putting enough money aside to fund those liabilities. Right. And I, I, so a couple of your products, and we'll go into this in a second here. So it's the, the financial state of the union, so the, the federal government, but also the cities. But I was just taking a look at the uh, the one from last year. I just love how it has, you know, kind of quick facts and just b- the basic breakdowns. But I, I did want to bring this up because it is something I think people don't realize that, you know, the, the treasury only includes, you know, a small portion of the actual social security, Medicare liabilities, right? Because they basically say, you know, well, we could pass a law at any time to stop paying those and this kind of crazy stuff. I mean, <laughs> what do you think about that? It seems like a interesting cop out to me. Yeah. Um, there is a, uh, uh, you know, FASB sets accounting standards for uh, corporations, and GASB sets accounting standards for state and local governments. There is actually a federal board. Uh, we call it FASAB, the Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board. And years ago, we were working to get Social Security, you know, the full unfunded liability reported on the balance sheet um, of the federal government. Uh, so we went to hearings on that where the board was deciding that. And Steve Goss, the chief actuary of Social Security, testified before us, and he was going through that line that the federal government, you know, can change the law at any time, so they do not owe any benefits to the beneficiaries beyond the checks that are due to be written, and that's what's recorded on the balance sheet. It's just the checks that are due to be written next month. And one of the board members said, so, Mr. Goss, are, are you saying that the federal government owes nobody any Social Security or Medicare benefits beyond the checks that are due to be written? And he said that is absolutely correct. 
we nearly fell off our chairs. And, you know, I testified later and said, okay, if, if this board decides, which they did, to not put Social Security and Medicare as a liability on the federal balance sheet, then I believe you need a massive education campaign of the American public to let them know that we don't owe you these benefits and you cannot count on these benefits. I also recommended that they go to members of Congress who had on their websites that these were guaranteed benefits, and I said, you need to ask them to take that off. Uh, you also need to quit sending those Social Security statements that say how much benefits people are getting. There is a little footnote that says, you know, if current law changes, we might not be able, you know, we can't, aren't going to do these. I said, if you send out the statements, make that the big headline, and you can put little numbers at the bottom. Um, but unfortunately, I, I did not win that argument in the board. Um, uh, there is another longer story about how the board was what I call gerrymandered um, so that uh, we did have all six public members agreeing that Social Security or Medicare should be a liability. And then two of the public members' uh, uh, terms uh, ended, so they replaced them. One of the public members' terms, they have two five-year terms. They uh, did not re-up his um, membership for his second term, never before in the term, in the his history of that board had they done that. They replaced those public members with people who used to represent Office of Management and Budget on that board. And they never voted on that standard um, on whether Social Security or Medicare should be a liability on the balance sheet. And the next meeting, uh, one of the board members said, well, we need to come up with a creative way to, uh, to, to, to report this. So that is why Social Security and Medicare is not a liability on the federal government's balance sheet. Right. Yeah, that's just amazing to me. They're common sense people, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, the other one, too, this is just uh, something I noticed, you know, since every, you know, technically the federal budget is a is a law, right? Appropriation law has to be passed every year. You know, they can't spend money unless that's, that's approved. Um, and for other reasons, you know, the way that we report or at least budget for things like leases even, right, long-term things like that, you know, they also kind of throw that little statement uh, you know, there's no guarantee we're going to fund this beyond a year or five years or whatever the number is. And it's like, okay, do you think so? We could just break all these government leases and nobody's going to sue us and make us pay. You know, things like that. There's right. a lot of that kind of thing too. Well, again, you know, and I, you know, if you go back to a person individually, you know, there are many Americans who are counting on these benefits. Um, and, you know, I think the public, you know, the public deserves to know that, you know, these are not guaranteed benefits and and you really need, you know, if people really understood that the, you know, Congress was thinking that they could change these and there's a chance that they could, um, would people plan their retirement differently? Uh, or, you know, right now they're just, a lot of people just go, okay, I'll live off Social Security and Medicare, unfortunately. Right. Well, let's get a little deeper into some of these documents. Um, so Financial State of the Union, I mentioned a little bit. You can give us more of that as well, more on that as well. Um, but if you could also just talk a little bit about what kind of content is in the Financial State of the States. Yes, yeah, so our, our, our Financial State of the Union, Financial State of the States, Financial State of the Cities, we take and we take the government's financial information in their financial reports and from their actuarial reports, and we we take it down to just a one pager uh, so people have it in hopefully an easily understandable format 
uh, to get a, an idea of their their government's finances uh, without looking to their, you know, especially local government and state governments. Uh, financial reports sometimes are, you know, 200, 300 pages long. So we just try to get it down to uh, to easily understandable format. The reason we started to do the financial state of the states was previously state and local governments were not required to put their full pension liability on their face of the balance sheet. And it went back to our mission where we're like, well, hold it, all these elected officials and citizens are making financial decisions without knowing the true financial condition of their government. So we took it upon ourselves to go ahead and recast the government's balance sheets, include those pension and retiree health care liabilities on those balance sheets, and came up with the financial state of the state. If you go to our data-z.org website, you can just click on your state, uh, and that report will come up. You can click on it. It becomes a PDF. And then we also have links to the our prior reports, plus links to uh, the government's own financial reports. Luckily, uh, and another outcome of this is, as I say, the governments were not required to report Social Security, I mean, uh, pension and retiree health care liabilities on the face of their balance sheet. So us and others and GASB members uh, went, worked to, uh, to require governments to put these on our balance sheets. I do remember testifying there, and uh, uh, David Bean, who was the director at the time, uh, after I testified, said, uh, well, Sheila, you are... Uh, you're one of the early testifiers today, and I assume that pretty much everybody after you is going to say that it is impossible for the state and local governments to calculate their unfunded pension liabilities. Um, so they, you know, and put them on their balance sheets. Uh, why do you think that it can be done? And I said, well, two reasons. One, as an employee, I can go online and on demand, I can get my benefits. I said, just add all of those up together. Number two, I held up our financial state of the state, and I said, for years, we have been doing it, and we have minimal information. So fortunately, we won the day, us and others. We Governments are now, state and local governments are now required to put their pension liabilities on their balance sheets. The value of our, our data and our uh, of our pension and the financial condition of the uh, financial state of the states and cities is that we have historical going back um, because obviously once the governments had to put this liability on their their um, books they you know their numbers changed dramatically um, but we have all we always calculated very similar to what governments are required to calculate it now and so we have a historical you know net position pension liabilities uh, and retiree health care liabilities. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's see if we can be nice if the federal did it, like you said. <laughs> but you got part of the battle. That's great. Um, and I wanted to mention that the state of the cities, I was just looking at that, and I was very surprised to see Washington, D.C. on the top of the uh, what you call the Sunshine Cities list. That was pretty surprising to me. Do you mind explaining that, Sunshine Cities? And Yeah, well, what we do is um, with our financial state of the states and our financial state of uh, the cities is we classify states that have um, – extra money available to pay bills as sunshine states and the monies, the states that need money to pay bills as sinkhole states. And as you mentioned, Washington, D.C. is our best state, um, our, our best quote state, which is a district actually, or city. Um, and, uh, you know, we believe that, you know, part of it is just they have, the, you know, a lot of, they have the backing of the federal government. They have federal government employees there. Uh, 
that, you know, for some reason they have not gotten, you know, their unfunded pension liability, I hate to say it's only, you know, it's actually overfunded on their unfunded retiree health care is actually overfunded. Um, so they haven't gotten into this unfunded pension and retiree health care debt. And that's where we find that most of the governments get into trouble. Right. Yeah. And um, just so, you know, we say other the other ones were Irvine, Lincoln, Plano, and Aurora. So they're, they're all in the positive there. And then on the, the low side, I guess it was uh, Portland, Philly, Honolulu, Chicago, and New York aren't doing quite as good. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, New York we, is our, our worst uh, city, uh, and Chicago is our second worst. But we do do another report that we just issued, what we call our combined taxpayer burden, because we realize that uh, the people in, in the city in, who live in the city of Chicago, they are the city of Chicago's financial report only includes a financial entity called the city. It does not include their school district. It does not include their uh, transit authority, their housing authority, the county, where New York's does. Um, so if you if you add all of those underlying entities plus the state debt, Chicago actually comes out worse than when New York when you include all of those underlying and overreaching. So if a taxpayer in the city of Chicago actually has more than 130 $5,000 of what we call taxpayer burden, which is each uh, taxpayer's share of the city's debt, uh, plus all those other entities, uh, where in New York, that's only 91000 I shouldn't say only, but 91000 So they come out second worst on that study. Right. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So, and I guess I did want to ask you about kind of an anecdote about Illinois in general. Sounds like um, Chicago might be one of the reasons for it, but, you know, just to, to kind of, again, the goal of your site is to have good information out there, you know, good, do good accounting, actually consider all the costs and all the, you know, everything that should be included. Um, did you want to tell us a story maybe about how Illinois, some things that happened there? Yeah, Illinois, like uh, 49 of the 50 states, plus the city, you know, all 75 cities we study, we assume most cities have a balanced budget requirement. And they have balanced budget requirements for very good reasons. Uh, one, so they don't go into unsustainable debt. But two, even more importantly, is for accountability. Uh, and uh, uh, a former Treasury official said that the uh, elected officials should not be able to spend, i.e. they're going to get a vote, without the pain of taxing, i.e. they're going to lose a vote. But because of the way the government's budget, especially Illinois, they have figured out a way to get around, to circumvent um, this uh, the balanced budget requirement, and they've actually, and that's why they have money they need to pay bills. If governments were truly balancing their budgets, then they wouldn't need any more money to pay bills. All the bills would have um, already been paid. You have to think of it, a lot of times governments will go, well, like, this is like, this is like, you know, you do have a mortgage. It's like, no, we're not including the mortgage in our study. We don't include capital assets, but we also do not include the debt related to those capital assets. This is, you know, the pension and retiree health care debt that's incurred is more like a credit card um, that even though you you de- just choose to defer to pay that payment off over time doesn't mean that you don't owe it right now. And it's even worse because it doesn't mean these pension retiree health care liabilities, just because the elected officials have chosen to defer them into the future, um, 
and future taxpayers are going to have to pay that doesn't mean that the city or the state doesn't owe that now. So Illinois, despite their balanced budget requirement, is more than $236 billion in the hole. And the way that they do that is, the unfortunately, the loose wording of the balanced budget requirement, which says, in essence, that your funds available have to equal your expenditures. So, Paul, I would ask you, if you borrow money, does that not become funds available? Yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, so the state of Illinois, when they borrowed $303 billion from the federal government, that in essence was recorded as revenue in the Illinois' budget. Um, and then you'll notice that they use the, they use the um, term expenditures, not expenses. So... Um, if they get a bill and they don't, they choose not to write a check for that bill during the budgeted year, they haven't done an expenditure, so that expense is not included in the balanced budget calculation. And that is how the state of Illinois and other governments have gotten into trouble, is they use this cash basis budgeting and they go, even though the employee has incurred these pensions, you know, even though the employees have earned these pension and retiree health care benefits, even though the state has incurred a liability for them, because we're not writing a check for them today, we do not have to include them in the balanced budget requirement calculations. So they can balance their budget by just not funding their pensions. And in Illinois, they they have a funding scheme that woefully underfunds their pensions, but the governor can claim that they are balancing their budgets, um, and he even claims they're fully funding the pensions because he's fully funding a statutorily required contribution, which woefully underfunds it. But he's fully funding this statutorily required contribution um, that, in essence, the SEC said was a fraudulent schedule. Um, but that's what they do here in Illinois. Um, and as I say, a per taxpayer share of the debt that the state has accumulated is more than $50,000. And what that means is future taxpayers are on the hook for paying this debt, and they're not going to receive any government services or benefits for that. And what that has done, um, we do have examples of the worst example of, you know, hey, how, what does this all mean and how does it affect people? The people it's affecting the most right now in Illinois are the state workers, the state teachers, um, the retired teachers, and the retired employees. Because if you're on the state's pension plan, uh, retiree health care or health care system, doctors in Illinois, because remember, they only include expenditures, so they don't pay the doctors and hospitals on time. So the doctors and hospitals are requiring employees to pay um, their their um, bills up front, and then the state eventually reimburses them. Um, so this is really, you know, some people are, have to delay surgery, and, um, you know, some people are having to go on payment plans to pay the hospital. So, so, you know, yeah, this is bad accounting. It's in the billions of dollars, but it is affecting people individually. Yeah, and that's really what I was wanting to hear, you know, what are some 
direct impacts this can have on on us, right? I mean, we need to, we need to know this information not just as a interesting anecdote or hey, look at that. We're, we're you know we know the government. We we've always assumed the government had a huge debt. Now it's even bigger. But you know, I mean, can you speak a little bit more about some other types of real world impacts that this has on us? Yeah, well, another antidote was um, in here. Uh, the state police almost ran out of ammunition in the state of Illinois because one of the vendors, Illinois has usually between 2 and $8 billion of unpaid bills because they just keep on delaying paying these so they don't have. And in their budget documents, they'll say, the beginning balance of unpaid bills is $2 billion. So we're going to increase that to $3 billion. Um, but we're still going to claim we balance the budget. Um, so in this case, the vendor who was providing the state police with ammunition said, you guys owe me, you know, thousands of dollars. I haven't been paid in months. I'm not going to give you any more ammunition. Um, and then they had to try to find another vendor who um, was willing to give the state credit um, but knew that they weren't going to get paid for 6 to 18 months. Uh, luckily, they were able to find one in Indiana at the last minute. Um, otherwise, they you know, they would have run out of ammunition for the state police. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I've heard stories. I mean, some federal uh, governments, um, federal agencies, you know, if they, if they ever are late or, you know, on, on paying invoices, I mean, a lot of these businesses, they're small. They can literally just go out of business because they don't have any income, you know, any, any money coming in the door. As and, a, and that happened in Illinois where, you know, we did have a budget impasse and um, vendors were just not getting paid by the state at all. Uh, we had nonprofits go out of business because they would have been promised money to the state. They hired employees uh, and, you know, incurred costs, but then the state never gave them money. So we had nonprofits go out of business. We had vendors go out of business. Uh, my local state rep, I went to meet him and I said, oh, look, at you're in a much larger office. Um, you know, you're in the former state senator's office. And he said, I am paying twice the rent for this office, but this landlord is used to getting paid eight, six to 18 months late. So he's getting paid every month, but it's from a year ago. I cannot go sign a new lease. So I'm paying double the rent that I would pay elsewhere in an office that is more suitable to me and more essential to my district. But I'm stuck here because I can't get a new lease with a new vendor because they won't wait six to 18 months to get paid. Right. No, it's just, yeah, it's, it's amazing. But, well, our, our time has flown by. We really didn't even get in the, to, to half the things. We could have two or three of these podcasts, but uh, this has been great. Well, I'll um, be happy to come again. And in the meantime, you know, the listeners can go to our truthandaccounting.org website. They can go to our data-z.org website. Sign up for our morning call. It's a, it's a, a weekly email that we send out that has federal, state, and local government budgeting and accounting stories, and they can they can get more information there. Okay, and I might take you up on that because I'm one thing I'm curious. I think you had mentioned when we talked before the podcast is you don't have a lot of other you know governments around the world, but I would I would be you know curious how do we compare with other countries? Is any other country in such a crazy situation as this? Yes, no, I'd love to talk to you about that and, and how uh, how New Zealand and Australia actually do good budgeting and accounting and useful accrual budgeting and accounting. It's, uh, 
it's a fascinating story. Yeah, for sure. Well, awesome. Well, this has been great. So Sheila, thanks again for joining us and uh, appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Paul. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. AGACGFM.org. That's where you go. All the podcasts are there. Getting very close to number 100. So we're going to have an exciting one for number 100. Going to record it at the PDT in July. So uh, a little surprise guest and see if you can guess who it is. But uh, you can find out for sure when you tune in next time. Until that next time. This is Paul Marshall signing off for Accountability Talks with AGA.